Okay, good morning. We are off and running. There we go. Um, we've been uh, going through the, the, uh, the book of Ephesians, as I just uh, mentioned a moment ago, moment ago and we're, uh, the premise that we're operating under is that the Apostle Paul has written this letter uh, to the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, and it gives us an instruction manual of sorts, insight into what arguably every church should look like. And we're nearing the end of this letter, so I, I imagine we'll be wrapping up uh, Ephesians next week, depending on, uh, maybe, maybe there might be two in there. I, I, I anticipate next week, but man, there is some deep stuff packed into these last uh, few paragraphs of, of, uh, of Ephesians. He's, he's bringing it all around. He's bringing it full circle. And we're going to jump right into the verses that uh, we're going to focus on this week. And if you're on our email list, I, I told you what we're going to be looking at. Uh, chapter 6 starting in verse 10, and we're going to read just through verse 12 today, uh, and uh, it says this, finally, again, he's wrapping up this letter, so he's giving his final thoughts here, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, we're really going to uh, dive deep into what the armor of God is uh, next week, uh, that you may be able to stand, but this is what we're going to focus on this week, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So how does that grab you? How does that grab you? We, we, we like to think of ourselves as, uh, as an intellectually you know, intelligent people. And, and if we're being honest, there's something about these verses that make us uncomfortable because we think we can categorize our faith into saying, okay, if A plus B equals C, then I just need to follow these things, and if I just, if I take it upon myself to bring Jesus into my heart, and then everything will be fine. But this is speaking about something else. This is speaking about, uh, again, just look at the words there, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present dark, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay, the first thing you have to understand uh, from what Paul is telling us here is, is that there is a mark to the Christian life. Yes, we like to think of, again, that the, the Christian life is underscored by peace. You know, we, we are at peace with God. Uh, we're told about the peace that passes understanding in Philippians 4. Uh, we're, 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 peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit in, uh, in Galatians. So yes, there comes a measure of peace with the Christian life. And again, if there's something we want to talk about when we're sharing our faith with other people, Peace is probably at the, at, the, at, the, at the, near the top of the list. Just occurred to me how many times I prayed for peace just in the prayer that we, we, uh, we, we opened with this morning, okay? But, but, the Bible places just as much emphasis on the fact that when you become a Christian, it's not smooth sailing from there. I, I, in fact, I can promise you it's not smooth sailing. It will not be. What happens when you engage in, in, in warfare, when you pick sides on a conflict? You immediately make enemies of all the people who aren't aligned with the side that you picked, right? So think about this. One of the ways, one of the ways you know you're a Christian is not only through peace. Yes, peace is a marker, right? But it's also through conflict. That's one of the ways you know you're a Christian. Christianity is a fight. It's a fight. So Paul tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, it's not other people 
that we, we wrestle against. It's not ultimately other people. We wrestle against something else. We wrestle against the spiritual forces. And generally speaking, we as Americans, even Christians in America, we have a hard time with this. We have a hard time with this. We, we don't know how to categorize this. We like to think of ourselves as, as cause and effect people. That's what I was alluding to a moment ago. But you know what? This isn't the case in, in most other parts of the world. When you talk about spiritual forces, when you talk about demonic activity, when you talk about just spirituality in general, about something else going on other than what our eyes can see and bear witness to, generally speaking, America, yeah, has a problem, but everywhere, everywhere else in the world, even in Latin America, places like uh, in Asian countries, there's not much resistance to the idea of the spiritual realm. So what about Christians in, in this country? What do we think? Do we believe in a spiritual realm? We know we're supposed to say yes, but what do we really think? When we get down to brass tacks, what do we really think? You know, we generally will go to one of two extremes. We either ascribe too much credit to the spiritual forces, where, where we blame every bad thing there that, that occurs on a demon, right? Or we consider ourselves a, a bit too sophisticated. Uh, but what does Paul tell us? The first thing he tells us is it's a reality. And, and that's the first thing that we need to come to grips with. The spiritual realm is a reality. It's a reality. So, what do you think? What do you, what do you believe? Uh, if you believe, what do you believe? Uh, about the demons? About the devil? Uh, how do they primarily engage in battle with us? Uh, what do you think? How does the devil work? Does anyone want to take a stab at that for us right now? Just... Offer something. I think the devil might work in this way or that way, or demons have this kind of impact on people. What do you think? Shauna, oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's hear you. Um, he definitely um, uses our weaknesses mm. and um, plays on those. Uh, that's what I you're reading my outline. That's really weaknesses. He plays on our weaknesses, is what Shauna said. Someone else. How does the devil work? Yeah, Lucy. I feel like the old Phil Donahue show here. <laughs> I don't need it. But, uh, um, it talks about that we have to guard our mind and we have to cast out things in our mind. So whether someone speaks to you, whether you read something, whether society's telling women that they need to look a certain way or they have to achieve a certain It's on your weaknesses, but insecurities. Excellent. Scripture, scripture, scripture. You, you, you played off each other. Yes, it certainly is. It certainly is still playing. He plays off of our weaknesses, and he tries to exploit those weaknesses and plants seeds of doubt in your head, but what's, what's the ultimate reminder? How do we get ourselves out of that? Scripture, 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 scripture. Yeah, Will. I think he plays uh, primarily on our pride and ego. Oh, gosh, good, yeah. Mm -hmm. To stroke it when that's an expensive investment and to attack it when that's also an expensive investment. Mm -hmm. Just manipulation, that's true. Manipulation, oh, yeah, is that what you were going to say too? Yeah. 
Very good. The, the, the devil seldom comes out uh, and jumps out with, with horns and a pitchfork and says, ah, I'm the devil. He often comes as, a, as, a, as, a, as an angel of light saying, hey, this is good. This is something good, don't you? This is, goes all the way back to the garden. Don't, don't you want to be like God? Well, why wouldn't we? And that's what he appeals to, right? He, but he appeals to you also your sense of pride, right? Okay, Ray. Doubt and deception. Oh, gosh, good words. That's right. Doubt and deception. Yeah, two of his, his, two of his. That's right out of his playbook. Yeah, go ahead. Distraction, same thing. Yeah, great point. So again, if, if you're supposed to be focused on Christ, what you know, and, and if focusing on Christ is ultimately what what uh, what brings you peace, what brings you salvation, what better motive than, or what better uh, mo, but to make sure you don't focus on Christ. These are all great. Let, let's let's uh, and most all of them I'm touching on a little bit in my uh, my outline here. Let's put a little organization around this, okay? Uh, and. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a lesson that I first taught all the way back in uh, 2015, I think. And every time I reteach it, I never just wholesale take what I, what I uh, had before. I, I'm always rewriting. Uh, but again, you can tell a lot of uh, this back in 2015. I was heavily uh, I was into Tim Keller. And so a lot of this is, is going to come, come out again. Some great points that uh, are, are lifers in terms of just things that you should keep in your, in your head and in your heart. And uh, uh, I hope that's what you get out of this. But the older I get, the more I realize uh, the way my doctor looks at me is a little bit differently. Okay. It used to be my doctor said, uh, you know, in your 20s and in your 30s, you look great. Get out of here. You're fine. Now this side of 50, my doctor says, uh, you're going to be here a while. We knew. <laughs> this is going to take a minute. Get comfortable. All right. Uh, in reality, no, actually it doesn't take that, that long, but, but the physical I get now primarily begins with a series of questions, okay? Uh, they're not tests, they ask me a series of questions. For example, Mr. Fesco, are you a smoker? No, I'm not, I tell them. Well, good, because smoking is the number four killer of people in your age. How about seatbelts? Do you wear a seatbelt? Uh, yes, I do. Great, because that's the number three killer of men your age, not wearing a seatbelt. Now tell me, do you exercise? Yes, I exercise regularly. I'd say I exercise regularly, yes. Good, because an unhealthy heart, that's the number two killer of men your age. So now tell us about your diet, and that's where we'll stop right here. We don't, we don't need to get into my diet in Sunday school, right? But, but do you see where they're going there? Do you see what they're doing? They're giving me a, a sort of, they're, they're, they weren't giving me a clean sweep of all the diseases that could possibly get me. They're focusing on very practical things that most often impact people like me. Okay, so in other words, I didn't take blood tests after blood tests after blood, though that, that is part of the drill now. But again, they're not, so let's, okay, let's do a sweep for diabetes now, let's do a sweep for this. Let's do, they're asking the most common things that, that, that will bring you down and starting with those, okay? That's what Paul's doing in this chapter. He doesn't answer for us every detail on how the devil can affect someone. He doesn't detail for us what to do in the event that we come across someone who is, who's green and their head is spinning around you know, three feet above the bed. Instead, he focuses on the very practical. Chances are, if I can say this, if the devil is going to get you, 
right? It's not going to be by way of demon possession. In fact, if you are possessed by Christ's Holy Spirit, you can't be possessed by anything else, okay? You're his, and he's not going to give you up, period. End of story, all right? So how are we impacted by the devil and his work? Because Paul is very clear about it. We are impacted by it. All right, let's talk about the devil for a minute. The word devil comes from the Greek word diablos, which is translated as, we touched on some of these before, accuser or slanderer. He's an accuser and a slanderer. So the work that the devil majors in, and we tend to think that the devil's chief work is possessing people, right? And, 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 and making their heads spin. But in reality, the work that the devil majors in is lying. He's a liar, okay? Chiefly a liar. Now think about to, back to the very beginning. What was Satan's M.O.? Did he possess Adam and Eve? No, he lied to them. He lied to them. He took truth, and just like Courtney was saying a second ago, and he just twisted it, just a little bit. He twisted it. He approached them and said, did God actually say? Did God actually say? Then he twisted the truth. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He took it and just twisted it a little bit. That's, of course, not what he said. He said that they can eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat it or you'll die. Then the serpent said, what? You will not surely die. Doubt. Did someone say doubt? I feel like someone said doubt. You'll not surely die. He went from twisting the truth to telling a straight up lie at that point. Now he's lying. He seduced them and tempted them through a lie. Now, if the serpent was being clever before, if he, was, if he was being crafty or subtle, he no longer is. He launches into an all-out assault on the truth of God and flatly contradicts what God says. God says, if you will eat, you will surely die. The serpent said, you will not die. You'll not die. Interestingly, Eve responded with, God said we couldn't eat it or touch it. That's not what God said. He didn't say anything. He didn't say... He, you notice how sometimes we tend to add, like, oh, we think we can approve upon God's word? That's what she's doing here. All right? It's interesting. Right from the start, we think we can approve upon God's law, but you might say the serpent played into it and exacerbated something that was already there. Something that was already there. He basically says, oh, no, you can do whatever you want, and there is no penalty. You, you, can, you can commit treason against your maker and not face the consequences. This, this is the, the, the genesis of every lie that the devil tells. You can disregard the word of God and do as you please with no repercussion. I mean, this is, this is foundational devil philosophy here. You can do whatever you want and not face the consequences of it. All right, that's been his MO from the very start. He's a liar. He uses lies to attack you. This is his chief means of operation through lies. Listen to this description, okay? This is uh, frighteningly and hauntingly one of the best descriptions I've heard of how the devil and his goons operate. It comes by way of a, I'm sure it came by Tim Keller, who was quoting a psychiatrist named John White, and his description says something to the effect of, I wish I could have brought it out, there's a piano back here, a baby grand piano, where you can lift the lid up and you see all the strings of the piano, right? And he says, take the piano, open it up, and sing a note into it, into the open piano. What, and whatever string your voice is attuned to, that string will vibrate. Whatever note you're singing, that note will vibrate inside the piano. Did you know that? It's pretty cool. Even though you haven't touched 
touched the piano key, it's vibrating to your voice. That's what the devil does. That's how the devil operates. The devil doesn't make a good person bad. The devil makes a flawed person worse. The devil plays on what's already inside you through lies. You've heard it said before, some of the effect of not giving the devil a foothold. That's the principle here. Uh, some weeks ago, uh, back in our study in Ephesians, we, we read a verse that told us not to let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because if you let bitterness go unattended, if you just let it right, what happens? He sings to that note. He sings to that note. He sings to that bitterness, and it vibrates. Again, he takes that weakness that's already inside of you, and he, he goes after that. It grows. See that? So Satan lies to you. It's not that you actually hear his voice in an audible manner. It's more subtle. And instead, he, he, he stimulates the talk that's already in your heart, that's already in your, in, your, in your heart and mind, in your head. And there's two basic categories to these lies that he tells. And these also might have come up before. They are temptation and accusation. Okay, these are his two main uh, uh, means of, of, of telling lies, temptation and accusation. Here's a, here's a definition for temptation. Temptation is what Satan used in the garden, okay? Temptation essentially gets you to have too high a view of yourself. Temptation gets you to have too high a view. Satan tells Adam and Eve, you will not die. You're not mortal. You're stronger than that. You're more like God than you realize. Eat the fruit. It won't affect you. Temptation gets you to have too high a view of yourself. Accusation is what the devil uses to get you to have too low a view of yourself. Okay, this is essentially what the devil uh, tried to use to tear Job apart. Surely you sinned, Job. Surely you must have done something to fall out of favor with God. Job, just curse God and die. That's the nature of the accusation dialogue. That, that God doesn't look at you with favor. That God, in, in, your, in your salvific state of Christ purchasing you and giving you his righteousness, forgiving your sin, that he still has a low view of you. But again, if you believe in the work of Jesus Christ, that he lived a perfectly righteous life, died and paid for your sins, that means from a justification standpoint, the Father looks at you as, as though you are draped with the robe of, of Christ's righteousness. So he can't have too low a view of you. He has the maximum favorable view of you because you're wearing Christ's robe. But the devil says, not really. There's something you got to do still to uphold your end of the deal. And can you do that? No, you're, you're, you're stuck. Okay? So in temptation, Satan tries to hide God's holiness and tries to hide or minimize God's hatred of sin from you. In accusation, he hides you from God's love. He actually plays up God's holiness, which again is a truth, and his wrath against sin. He hides God's love. So temptation and accusation are both lies that Satan leads you to think in certain ways and moves you to do what's wrong. Accusation, temptation. If, for example, you have a problem with arrogance, guess which notes Satan sings to in your heart? He tempts you and to, to play off of what's already there. What's already there. Um, okay, in, a, in another sermon that, that Tim Keller preached on this subject, he brings up a book by a 17th century Puritan named Thomas Brooks. 
And the name of this book is entitled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I, went, I actually went out and bought this book and, and read it. Uh, and in it, he de details a number of Satan's lies, both in the temptation and accusation category. And then he details the possible remedies to those lies. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Now, I want to give you a few of these just to illustrate how this works. And we'll talk about how the device works, then try and identify if it's temptation or accusation. Okay, so one of the lies that Satan tells you plays the string in your heart goes like this. He shows you the bait and hides the hook. He shows you the bait and hides the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison. To present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly following uh, that will certainly follow the committing of sin. This is probably the most recognizable one to you. This is what he used against Adam and Eve. This is the, the sin of the garden. He showed them the bait, the power. You can be like God. But then he hid the death from them. He showed them the life, hid the death. This is probably the device that he used so often with sexual sin. This is what sexual sin is, is based upon. Short-term benefit put on display, and somehow the long-term pain is hidden in the moment. You know, is that temptation or accusation? That's temptation. Temptation. You believe you're more powerful than you actually are. I can engage in this and not feel the effects of, of the sin later on. Here's another one. By painting sin with virtue's colors, Satan knows that if he would present sin in its own nature, this is what I was talking about, he doesn't always show up with a pitchfork and, and, and uh, horned ears. If, uh, if he would present sin in its own nature and dress, the soul would rather fly from it than yield to it. And therefore, he presents it to us, not in his own proper colors, but painted and gilded over with the name and show of virtue, that we may more easily be overcome by it and take the more pleasure in committing of it. Basically, what this means is if Satan just presented you with an awful, ugly reality of committing sin, you, you'd probably turn and run from it. If you saw the consequences, you'd be like, oh, no, thank you, right? So instead, he dresses it up as something good. Then you have no problem committing it. Do you see this one? I'm, uh, I'm, not, I'm not greedy. I'm thrifty. Uh, I'm not gossiping. I just want you to pray for them. Uh, I, uh, uh, you know, and, and any number of those, any number of those, he can, he can say, he, he, you present as, oh, this is really a good, I'm, I'm really, I'm really standing for something good, but in reality, maybe it's something that's, that's, uh, selfish. We do that all the time, all the time. Here's another one. They're getting a little bit longer as we go. <laughs> I promise you they're not going to, to present God to the soul as one made up of all mercy. Oh, says Satan. You need not make such a matter of sin. You need not be so fearful of sin, not so unwilling to sin, for God is a God of mercy, a God full of mercy, a God that delights in mercy, a God that is ready to show mercy, a God that is never weary of showing mercy, a God more prone to pardon his people than to punish his people, and therefore he will not take advantage against the soul. And why then, says Satan, should you make such a matter of sin? Look, this is all, here's what's crazy, this is all true. God is a God of mercy. God is eager to show you mercy. But what, is the, what does the devil do here? He says, it's all about mercy. There, there's, there's nothing else you've got to be concerned about. 
you know, and the gospel is a gospel of, of, uh, of grace and truth. You, you can't have one without the other. If it was only grace, then yeah, it wouldn't matter what we do. But again, God is not only in the business of, of, of judgment and convicting of our sin. He also wants to sanctify us and change us. So we do have to be concerned about this. All right? Um, let's see. I got a couple more. And then we'll, we'll talk about any of these that, uh, that you want to. But here's another one. To make one bitter over suffering and loss. Satan says, do you not see that there are none in this world that are so vexed afflicted and tossed as those who walk more circumspectly than holily than their neighbors you were you were better to walk in ways that are less troublesome and less afflicted though they be more sinful for who but a madman would spend his days in sorrow vexation and affliction when it may be prevented by walking in the ways that i set before him have you heard this one i i've suffered i deserve this one no one has suffered more than me, and therefore God owes me this one. I, I, and, or, or God, believe it or not, this is one I, I remember vividly telling the Lord when I was in seminary. Haven't I done enough? Haven't, look, Lord, I'm in seminary. That's, that's, no, not everyone goes to seminary. Haven't I done enough for you, right? Haven't I gone through enough that you should ask me now to go through this? Is that one temptation or accusation? You could probably categorize it either way. This one, I think, is accusation. God has forgotten about you. God has forgotten about you. Your, your, your best bet is to fend for yourself, in light, which, again, that could probably be temptation now, too. Your best bet is to fend for yourself in light of the fact that God doesn't look out for you. It's both, right? Um, I deserve better than this, is how that would look from a, from a temptation standpoint. You know? Here, here's some from a, 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 one more from the accusation category. Looking more at your sin than your savior. That's accusation. For every one look at your sin, you need to take five looks at your savior. The devil does what he can do to keep you from doing that. We just talked about this a moment ago. For every look at sin, take five looks at your savior. All right, obsessing over past sins whereby the damage can't be undone. Though the effects remain, and this, will, this is often the case with sin. Though the effects remain, the devil would like nothing more than to make sure that you believe that forgiveness is tied to those effects. That because you're still suffering from the effects of sin, that somehow the Lord hasn't forgiven you. That's false. That's a lie. That's a lie. Since you're still suffering to the effects of sin, that must mean God doesn't forgive you. You think the troubles are, are, you're going through must be, must be punishment for the sin. Remember for the believer, for the one who is in Christ, when the Lord said, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that meant it is finished for you too. There is no more punishment. You are no longer being punished. To, to, to suggest that you are being punished is to suggest that what Christ did on the cross was not enough. And believe me, brothers and sisters, it was enough. It was fully, completely satisfactory uh, to, to God's satisfying his judgment. Yes, there are still effects, and those effects are, believe it or not, used for your sanctification, for you being made to be more conformed into the likeness of Christ. So those effects, though you may suffer them, are not punishment, are not punishment, okay? Uh, one more. How about this one? By thinking the thoughts and things you struggle with obviously means you're not a Christian. A real Christian wouldn't think that. A real Christian wouldn't engage in that kind of sin or think of those kinds of thoughts. Do those sound familiar? The devil is playing you when you think those kind of thoughts. He's singing a note that strikes a chord in your heart and, he, and your heart reacts to it. 
you, you've become aware of his schemes and, and understand what he's doing. This is what we're fighting. This is what we're fighting. The schemes of the devil. This is what spiritual warfare is. Does anyone want to have a, have a comment? Or, and I that was a lot. But hopefully you can see that it's, it's not just a singular MO that the devil uses. But it's pretty complicated. And it's pretty complex. And it's not just one way. It's, but he uses all these ways. Sometimes it's through building up the word of God. Believe it or not, sometimes it's tearing it down. Yeah, Shona. Mm-hmm. The more we're subject to this. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The more that the devil tries to attack us because the closer we get to him, and then, we should just anticipate. And then you, that should only pull you closer to Christ, right? Right. Yeah. Something. Maybe think about all of them. I think about myself and come to be alone in our thoughts mm-hmm. and not be in Christ centered community. I'm blessed to have a wife. Start every day getting some of those thoughts out, those whatever they are. Um, a church, we're leaning in to be part of a community, a place that is Those, we can't alone in our thoughts because we were Yes and amen. Yes and amen. One of the most, one of the most merciful things that uh, a Christian brother or sister can do for you is, is, uh, is to tell you, hey, you're, you're wrong. You're wrong here. You're, you're stepping ever close to this sin or that sin. And we, we tend to want to favor the opinion of, don't judge me. No, that's not what Christian brothers and sisters do judge. We, we take a look at the, the, uh, the log in our own eye before we remove the splinter. Okay, it doesn't stop at just the removal of the log. We, we, still, we still proceed. Examine yourself first so that you can go to your brother and sister in Christ and be merciful to them and say, hey, look, uh, I, I really think you ought to consider what you're doing here. And that only happens in the context of Christian community. If you do isolate yourself, not only are you isolated with what's already the notes that are being sung to your head, uh, but then you're, you're subjecting, you're removing yourself from, from one of the ways that Christ uses to pull you out of that. That's through your brothers and sisters, the body of Christ pulling you out of that. Excellent point. Someone else? Yeah, Lucy. That's right. Yeah. It's what he's laid out for mm-hmm. us. Beautiful. Love it. Thank you. Let me, let me wrap us up because we got about, uh, I got to get you out of here no later than 10 minutes. Uh, this, and th- this is, I thought, a good way to wrap because I told you yesterday, there's, there's, there's ways that we can engage in, uh, in fighting this. Next week, we'll talk about the armor of God, which is, again, his answer to how we answer these, uh, these authorities, right? But last year, we went through a series on the, the various types of psalms in the Bible, and one of the ones I got to preach on was the imprecatory psalms. Do you know what those are? 
imprecatory psalms, and if you understand the nature of, of them, they are psalms that are meant to call down a curse upon God's enemies. And, and that's a tough subject. How many of you went to the, uh, the early service this morning? When we had, Anatoly uh, is doing the confession of sin, and one of the things that he pointed out is that he is Ukrainian, right? How do you not hate uh, Russians? You know, he just pl plainly said that. that. I'm told to love my enemies, right? And so that's what makes this so, so difficult when, when you, you think, okay, these are the enemies of God, so I'm gonna call a curse down upon your enemies. But Jesus tells us to do what? Jesus tells us to love your enemies. Love your neighbor to the exclusion of no one. So when, when you look at another person's eyes, you're looking into the eyes of a fellow image bearer. So how can we pray a curse down upon people like that, right? I, I think it's something that we obviously have to be very careful with, but having said that, there is one enemy that we can always pray against. This is the enemy that Paul tells us about in Ephesians 6. We can always pray against that enemy. We can pray against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. You can always safely pray against those, these, these imprecatory psalms. Okay, look at this. this it's, it's hard to pick a person you might rightfully pray this over, but the cosmic powers over this present darkness? Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor uh, who delight in my hurt. Psalm 71 through 2. You see what this is saying? It's like saying, Lord, don't let Satan destroy, uh, or Lord, Lord, don't let Satan's song resonate in my heart, but destroy it. Destroy that song. Destroy this enemy. Now, here's another one. If you were to ask me what my favorite psalm in the whole Bible is, we, I think we even, uh, Stacy might have referenced it this morning. Uh, tough question, but I'd say Psalm 139. I love Psalm 139, which includes words like this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It's hard not to get weepy when I read words like that. But do you know what's also a part of this psalm? Right near the end of this psalm is an imprecatory prayer, verse 19 and following. Oh, that you would slay the wicked! Oh God, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Who are you going to pray that over? Right? Again, it's your favorite psalm all of a sudden seems a little wrong, but especially when I'm told by Jesus not to hate. But again, when you realize you're praying against the enemies of God, God, I, I count your enemies as my own. We can pray them just as Christ prayed, but notice where the psalmist goes right after praying these words against God's enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Did you read that? The Lord, if, Lord, if the song that my enemy sings has made its way to my heart, purge it. Remove that song from my heart and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, pray against the enemy within. 
that, that the Lord would destroy any remnant of the song that he sings to you, that he would destroy it, that, he, he would, that it would break his teeth, is what it says in another imprecatory psalm. Break its teeth and quiet him forever. Does that make sense? Pray against your, you pray these words, pray the imprecatory psalms against the, 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 the forces of evil, the principalities over this, this present darkness. So that's the enemy within. There's also one more enemy that we can pray against, one that also falls into this category of the rulers, authorities, and the cosmic powers. Not just the enemy within, but the enemy without. Okay, what's the enemy without? Okay, uh, last illustration here, then we're going to wrap it up. I don't know what kind of consumer you are. Uh, I know some of my family members are more eager than others to let their opinions be known when it comes to their satisfaction as a consumer. Now, it's not my intention to make any of you feel uncomfortable, but here goes. How many of you have ever written a negative product review, uh, or a product review in general, be it kind, positive, or negative, and then maybe assigned a star value, one to five? Have you done that before? Okay, all right, now I know who my people are. Okay, now, let's, uh, I'm not gonna call on you, and we're not gonna get specific, uh, but I imagine many of you, some of you have written a negative product review, right? Right, okay. Let's just isolate the negatives. And I'll admit that I'm among those who have written a negative product review, and I'll admit that I'm, I'm, I'm influenced by negative product reviews. You know, your voice is heard. Not too long ago, I purchased a new water heater for the home so that we can have hot water at every sink and every shower. And, and a hot water heater is not an insignificant investment. They're costly. Now, the heater that I bought received overwhelmingly positive reviews, but there, was a few, there are a few negative reviews which stood out to me. Here's one of them. It heats water, which is fine. It's also extremely loud with a vibration noise that kicks on every time it runs and it keeps on going for a while after the tap is off. It sounded like a big truck was idling on the other side of the wall. I regret my purchase. Two stars. That was my review. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. Uh, but, but first world problem, right? Uh, I want you to realize that that is an imprecatory prayer. Think about it. They were so upset that they took to assembling a series of words, they organized them, and even came up with, with poetic comparisons of, of big trucks and whatnot, and, and then they cast them out into the ether. You know, this was their means of what? Fighting back. They were fighting back. I'm going to stick it to the man. He sold me a bum water heater, so I'm going to let the world know about it, right? Okay? Why do they, they want to fight back? I'll bet they don't want to write a bad review uh, when they buy an apple at the grocery store. I bet they're not, maybe some of them are, I don't know. <laughs> uh, why, why did they write this imprecatory prayer? I'll bet it has something to do with the fact that what they bought was significant, of significant investment, right? Do we engage in imprecation against our enemy when we see the costly damage that's done? When, when they inflict pain on those around us, or have we become a little callous to it, right? When we, when we hear the name of the Lord used in vain, do we take that as an assault from the enemy? Or, or, do, or are we just used to it now? You know, when we see injustice in the world, do we move on to the next thing or do we consider that an assault from the enemy? You know, identity is a big topic in the culture right now. We have an enemy who seeks to misinform young people, to, to, to make them forget who they are and whose image they're made. 
And again, I can't emphasize that enough. I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about the spiritual forces of this present age that tells them lies and, and makes accusations against them. We can always, 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 and we should be praying against them all the time because they sing a heart to the song, they sing a song to the hearts of young people, and it's a lie. It's a lie. Does it make you mad enough to want a prayer of imprecation against them? Against God's enemy? Because let me tell you something, the damage being done is costly. It's costly. That's the enemy without, not within, but without, around us. The spiritual forces around us that seek to work against us. So what we'll do next week, we'll finish up Ephesians, and we're going to talk about more ways that we can fight against the enemy uh, beyond prayer. But I feel like that's the most important one to begin with. Start with prayer. Start with prayer. Uh, Because again, we're going to talk about the armor of God next week, and we'll be done with Ephesians and on to the next thing, which I've gotten a few suggestions from you all, and I can't wait to dive into the next thing. Any final thoughts, comments, or questions before we go? Anyone else? Great feedback. I love all your input. But again, let's start with this. Let's just start with uh, the basic need to pray, to pray against the enemy within and the enemy without. And if we start with that, I think that makes our church family, our individual families, our, uh, our city, I think it, makes, it starts to make a, a lot of difference if we just start with this. All right? Let me close this in prayer. And then if you have any questions or final thoughts, you can please uh, come to me uh, afterwards too. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to remember this. Help us to take it seriously. Uh, because often we, we tend to believe only the things that we can see with our eyes and not realize that, that all around us, uh, are, are, things are going on, things are happening, and the devil would like nothing more than for us to just forget about these things and, and dismiss it because we can't see. Uh, but we know your word tells us they are here, but your word also tells us we have a means of, of fighting against it, uh, not because of our strength, not because of our abilities, but because of the one uh, who lived a perfect life on our behalf and died for our sins. Help us to remember that. Help us not only to, to keep that in our hearts as we leave this place, but remember that every other Christian that we look at is indwelled by the same Holy Spirit that we are, And that is far greater than anything else that is in the world. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Help us remember that, Father, and help us leave this place committed to changing people because of what Christ has done for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you all.